Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, Endowed Chair of Politics, Science, and Religion here at UofL. I'm joined today on the interviewer side of the mic by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral fellow. Ashani, how is it going on this wonderful spring afternoon? It's going great. All right. Uh, thanks again to the great leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl. CAD's podcast channel uh, is now accessible both through our website at the University of Louisville uh, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search Center for Asian Democracy, uh, subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future episodes. Um, we today are going to be here talking with Stephen Feldstein, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Stephen is the author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Uh, Steve is interesting to talk to regardless, but we are especially excited to talk to him today because just yesterday he was awarded the 2023 Grawmeyer Award for Ideas Improving World Order. Uh, the Grawmeyer Award, for those not in Louisville, um, is a, uh, an award that the Department of Political Science gives here every year uh, to a work in international relations or comparative politics that grapples with a big picture problem in the international system uh, and talks about what we might do about it. Um, and as you'll hear in just a little bit, uh, Stephen's work does exactly that. Uh, the awards season is always fun here at UofL, uh, but we don't always talk to the winners if they don't write about Asia. But when they do, they come on the pod. Those are the rules. And so uh, we're glad to have uh, Steve with us for this conversation. Um, he works at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, uh, where he is affiliated with their uh, Democracy, Conflict, and Government program. Um, he has also served in the United States Department of State as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Democracy, Rights, and Labor uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, he worked as well um, at the U.S. Agency for International Development in their policy shop uh, and was former associate professor at Boise State University. Uh, he holds a law degree from California, Berkeley, uh, and a bachelor's uh, from Princeton University. Um, it's a great conversation. We're really excited to share it with you all. Um, what stood out to, to you, Ashani, as you uh, talked to Stephen? Uh you know the the new phrase the revolution will be tweeted uh, indicating just how resistance movements are so deeply dependent on digital media and so it has become all the more important to think about how sovereignty is exercising power through this form and just learning from uh, Stephen about the nuances at a global scale and its sort of geopolitical implications was so very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, we're at this moment, uh, you know, not long after the, the TikTok hearings on the Hill and all that sort of thing where um, digital technology and its ties to democracy are sort of everywhere, uh, including in press coverage and policy debates about Asia. And yet, uh, I think we all have a lot to learn about that. And it seems to me that one of the things that, that really stood out from his visit in our conversation is um, that the, the story is not as simple as we might assume it to be. Uh, responses are going to be complicated, right? Um, but that's not necessarily a pessimistic story, too, because it also means that there are opportunities uh, for creative policymakers and civil society activists um, and just concerned citizens and users um, around the world uh, to, uh, to use this technology and integrate it into uh, continuing work for democracy in Asia and, uh, and closer to home. So without any further ado, uh, I give you Stephen Feldstein. All 
righty. Well, we are here today with uh, Stephen Feldstein, author of The Rise of Digital Repression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics, and Resistance from Oxford University Press, and more importantly, uh, the recently awarded 2023 winner of the Grawmeyer Award uh, for Ideas Improving World Order. Uh, first of all, thanks, Steve, for being here. It's been a pleasure to have you on campus and, uh, and to continue the conversation now focused on Asia. Thanks for hosting me. I really look forward to the conversation. All right. Um, so maybe we can dive right in with uh, how you opened the book, actually. You opened up the book talking about how uh, you started to develop an interest in this question of digital repression during your time uh, sort of late at the State Department and then immediately after leaving in 2017, um, especially uh, after reading some of the early human rights and journalistic reporting on uh, China's harnessing of digital technologies in Xinjiang. Um, maybe you can just get us started uh Telling us a little bit about what it was like to track this issue in those early days. What first got your attention as somebody who had worked in the human rights space for some time? Uh, what grabbed your attention about being new and worth paying attention to uh, in this uh, use of digital tools by the Chinese? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, really interesting. You know, I, I started, I mean, we have all been aware of lots of the, the different human rights abuses associated with uh, with China. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of go along, and but even as you've been involved, uh, as I was involved in the human rights field, things will come up that surprise you, and China became very surprising. As I started to learn about the use of new tools, algorithmic surveillance, uh, high-power video cameras, new integrated uh, operations platforms and apps that were uh, pulling together uh, information uh, in all aspects when it came to the Uyghur population uh, in Xinjiang, and really... Uh, understand kind of this new wave, uh, this new dimension of repression. Uh, it was both a very chilling moment for me to sort of say, well, is this what's oncoming when it, uh, globally when it comes to new forms of repression? And also raised a lot of curiosity to me in terms of how do these techniques work? What is their, uh, their benefit? Uh, to what extent are, are companies, whether Chinese manufacturers or Western manufacturers, responsible for helping to proliferate these tools? And so that's really sort of became one of a couple entry points into really trying to research and better understand this new aspect of, of repression. That's great. Um, and, you know, a big part of your book, and we won't go into all the weeds here, but a big part of it is this really global uh, digital repression index that you develop um, based on indicators of uh, digital coercion around the world. Um, you don't need to unpack every part of it, but I mean, one of your key arguments is that actually not all digital repression is created equal, right? That there's variation here that we need to be paying attention to. And, you know, scholars, we love variation. You're speaking our language. Um, and it lets you do some cool statistical analysis, too, in the, in the project. Um, can you just real quick tell us a little bit about what some of those major varieties of digital repression are? And, uh, and what does it mean to say that, like, it's not all created equal? Yeah, so, you know, there, there are a number of different aspects that I think uh, are important. And one of the first things I wanted to do was begin to kind of break down different component parts. Because when I first started approaching the question, it really felt like a jumble of techniques. And I was having a hard time disentangling one for, uh, from another. So what exactly, when we're talking about censorship, how, how did surveillance fit in? Or what did Internet shutdowns and connectivity disruptions, how did that relate to disinformation? I mean, so, you know, in the process of that, I took many different iterations, first of just defining like a taxonomy. Uh, and what I really found was that, you know, there's uh, five kind of primary techniques that were used, which were sort of like catch-alls for a number of more specific ones, surveillance, censorship, disinformation, internet shutdowns, and persecution of, of uh, internet uh, you know, online users. 
but then within that, trying to kind of figure out what combination of techniques were being used by different countries became a really important thing. And so I got at that question a couple different ways. One was through sort of looking at uh, an aggregation uh, of different quantitative data, looking at how rankings based on uh, expert uh, uh, surveys from the Digital Society Project, how that compared from one country to another, and then sort of breaking down the data that way. Uh, but then, you know, that, that sort of got me to a certain point, and then I felt I really need to do more qualitative research. I need to actually get out and go to some of these countries to probe specifically what these actual, uh, uh, what the data actually meant. And so that became sort of part of the mixed method uh, aspect to, to the book. But, you know, really, you know, the original kind of idea uh, was to sort of break down these different categories and then figure out what configurations look like, uh, you know, based on regime type, region, and, and so forth. Um, so one of the things that you say in your bu book is how autocracies and democracies digitally rep repress in sort of divergent ways. For instance, autocracies use more social media surveillance and arrest of online users, while democracies rely on media uh, manipulation, disinformation. And you do point out that, you know, we are seeing countries around the world shift from one category to the other. Um, so I, I wanted to ask you about Indian democracy as it moves towards a more autocratic model uh, where disinformation is coupled with violence and suppression. So India's right-wing party, um, has uh, kind of erected two types of militias that work in tandem with each other. So we have an, an army of trolls that publicly harass, threaten, and even spread disinformation, and uh, sort of a mini physical grassroots army trained in which, which are known um, in, in what are known as shakhas or camps, who commit violence which are often instigated by these army of trolls spreading disinformation. So how do you understand uh, technology interacting with more traditional means of suppressing dissent and free speech and just sort of autocratic violence against me? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's a really good example, and we've seen instances of that play out in other uh, places as well. Uh, you know, Myanmar immediately comes to mind, this kind of idea of using online-oriented harassment and intimidation and persecution combined with offline physical tactics that lead to violence and, uh, you know, physical harm. I mean, that's something that you really see a, a tremendous amount about. And frankly, you know, what's interesting is that when I first approached this, I think there was a little maybe, uh, you know, I, there was a little more of a separation in, in some ways and that there was sort of a, a way you could sort of say, well, there's traditional violence, uh, traditional repression, and more digitally oriented repression. But I feel increasingly as our lives have become more and more based online, as we've seen, uh, you know, information and communication technologies become central to how we do our business, whether uh, it's education, whether it's banking and commerce, uh, whether it's communicating with our relatives, I think it's increasingly blurry uh, trying to find a distinct separation between the two, which I think yeah, kind of gets to your point in that uh, there really is a large amount of convergence uh, taking place. And you know, these days, trying to sort of say one is digital and one is phys physical repression, I think a better way to think of it is that the two are really becoming uh, kind of enmeshed uh, together. Uh, and so, uh, it's not surprising to me that to see how much these tactics cross over from one to the other. Uh, and, you know, I think a good example of that uh, is like you look at sort of uh, internal conflict and war and how much uh, you see kind of a relationship between, uh, on the one hand, internet shutdowns and on the other hand, the commission of armed conflict. And Ethiopia is a good case in point there. Uh, in other words, you wouldn't 
undertake a military operation or you wouldn't undertake a security operation without also thinking about the digital side as well. The two really are coming hand in hand increasingly and I think that's a trend uh, that will only continue. Um, so you you eventually spend a lot of time uh, looking at uh, two Southeast Asian countries with pretty distinct political trajectories, Thailand and Philippines. Um, let's start with talking uh, about Thailand a bit. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, repression to discuss, but one of your findings is that Thailand isn't entirely even in its. Uh, uh, it, one of your findings is that Thailand isn't entirely even in its approach to repression. Um, on your uh, overall index, Thailand actually doesn't even measure up as more repressive than the Philippines. What does what does digital repression in general look like to you? Yeah, in Thailand? I mean. You know, it's, it's interesting. I mean, part of what you see in Thailand is a bit of an informal, what they call door-knocking culture. So it's the idea that you don't necessarily need to actually repress uh, so much as you intimidate by uh, knocking on the doors uh, in the middle of the night, uh, you know, talking to activists or others who might be posting things that go against the central government and warning them and, uh, and essentially uh, intimidating them so that uh, their behavior, that leads to a behavior change or a chilling effect. Uh, and, you know, I mean, what's actually interesting, if you look at kind of more recent data, Thailand actually has gotten a bit worse, and the Philippines has gotten a little bit better. So the most recent data should have shows Thailand worse than the Philippines. But the interesting thing is, uh, you know, each country oppresses distinctively in its own way, based on capacity, based on political tradition, uh, based on other dynamics. So what you have really in Thailand is a, uh, an ecosystem of control, a desire by the regime to try to suppress and control uh, the free flow of information online to the extent that it can. Uh, and that really goes along well with a culture of censorship uh, and you know rules related to uh, uh, prohibitions about one, what one can say about the monarchy uh, that is pretty embedded when it comes to Thai society. Uh, in the Philippines, you have a very different situation. You have a much more open culture when it comes to free expression and to saying things. And so the idea that you would be able to kind of put in place a blanket suppression along the lines of Thailand wouldn't work as well in, a, in the Philippines context. But you also have uh, a much greater propensity for manipulation of information, the trading and propaganda and false narratives, uh, and really just sort of the distortion of the information ecosystem. And so there, uh, you know, those are the tools that are most relied upon uh, when it comes to uh, propagating, at least when I wrote the book, uh, at the time, uh, the presidency of Duterte, Rodrigo Duterte. Uh, and so at the end of the day, uh, you have unique strategies, but each strategy is relying upon a set of repressive techniques in order to accomplish a particular outcome, which is regime survival, which is ensuring that those in power are able to stay in power and tilting the political landscape accordingly so that remains true, using online techniques as, as, the, the, techniques, uh, as, the, as the means to do so. All right, so, so you mentioned Duterte's name, and so now I've got to come back in here um, and, uh, and talk about uh, his uh, administration and how it fits into your story, because it's a super important part of um, the recent story of, of sort of democratic backsliding and rights in, in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, if our listeners know one thing about Duterte's uh, time and power in the Philippines, it's probably most likely related to the drug war and the, um, 
uh, alleged extrajudicial killings of, um, of upwards of 30,000 um, individuals during his time in office. Um, but what you highlight in your book um, is uh, maybe a little bit less well-known outside of the country, and that's the extent to which uh, online disinformation was really central to Duterte's rise, to the extent that Facebook internally referred to uh, the Philippines as patient zero um, in their own understanding of how disinformation can shape uh, politics and, and society. Um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Um, how did social media companies factor into uh, Duterte's rise to power? Um, and, uh, and, you know, to what extent is it fair to say that they share some culpability um, for uh, deteriorating democratic institutions? Or, or do you think that's putting it too strongly? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, it, it's really interesting with Duterte. So I think, you know, one of the things that uh, is important to note is that he wasn't a front-running candidate initially. He actually faced a lot of constraints when it came to resources and, and the ability to advertise in traditional media. Uh, and around the time as his campaign was sort of getting going, Facebook actually sent a team uh, out to the Philippines uh, to meet with any of the ca campaigns that were interested uh, to essentially provide uh, tools and lessons about how Facebook could be used to leverage a, a political campaign. And of all the different campaigns out there, Duterte's was the only one who showed up and attended the trainings. And, you know, those were lessons that they internalized very well. Uh, and what, what they realized was that uh, the, 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 so the Philippines uh, media context was shifting pretty, pretty rapidly and that Facebook uh, not only was becoming synonymous with the internet but that not something like 97% of all eligible uh, Filipinos were online on Facebook. So you had a ready-made market uh, available that was uh, otherwise untapped by other campaigns and Duterte recognized that opportunity and exploited it accordingly to the point where he was elected in a pretty resounding way where, uh, you know, in the 2016 election, and that running into that election, uh, he was thoroughly dominating discourse on Facebook, something like 68% or more of all interactions related to Duterte. And so that kind of visibility, his ability to kind of push out messages accordingly and game the algorithm such that, uh, you know, he would gain a huge amount of following online, uh, many people find responsible for getting him into power, and then something that he... Uh, subsequently uh, really leveraged uh, on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of his rule. Now, you know, a, a, a fair question and one that many people ask is to what extent then is Facebook and platforms like that responsible for or culpable uh, in Duterte's rise and, and his perpetuation in power? And I think that becomes, that's a, becomes a bit of a complicated question because certainly you can say that without having an online platform like that, uh, I think Duterte would have faced significantly more obstacles in terms of his election success and maybe wouldn't have even won the, the election. Uh, on the other hand, to simply point at a platform and say that, but for this platform, democracy is fine in the country, that there would otherwise not be in a liberal strain that was there, uh, that there isn't a sort of tradition of strongman uh, leaders who uh, who thrive, or that the polarization in the Philippines isn't something that was endemic, would would be sort of missing the bigger picture in terms of how politics are done uh, in the country. And so I think it becomes very complicated because we can't dismiss the impact that Facebook has had uh, in the country when it comes to politics, but we also shouldn't um, look at that and sort of overanalyze and 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 essentially prescribe and say, well, it is just because of Facebook that the territory wouldn't be in power while ignoring all the other political factors that allowed him uh, you know, to gain uh, an electoral margin and to continue to do so uh, with now his daughter, Sarah Duterte, uh, who's vice president. So I think the answer is complicated, 
uh, in the Philippines and one that we need to continue to think about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, just a real quick follow-up. Like, you know, you talk about how Duterte's campaign learned from Facebook, right, in those early days. Did you get any sense in the field about what Facebook in those early days learned about themselves from Duterte? In other words, how in those early days as Facebook uh, staff are sort of learning about how their tool is changing, do you have any sense of how they reacted internally and what like analytic process they went through to try to think about their response? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I think initially there was a lot of surprise on the part of Facebook that someone like Duterte could have could so quickly and so virally gain success in that manner. And I think there was a little bit, then there, there was certainly a, a bit of trepidation in terms of looking at the types of toxic messages that were coming out from Duterte and the way that the platform was being manipulated to further his political agenda. At the same time, I think there was also a bit of a, you know, of a mentality of, you know, we can't interfere in this. You know, our role isn't to, to be uh, a referee. Uh, you know, if other campaigns, uh, if Duterte can do this and game the platform, other campaigns have the ability to do so as well and let whoever can do that best win out. But, you know, we are here to be neutral uh, and we're not here to, to sort of make rules uh, because that puts us down a slippery slope. And I think only belatedly, uh, you know, as they started kind of circulating more and more memos calling the Philippines patient zero, really kind of getting a kind of a, a sense of how much off the rails things were going. Did they say, well, we probably should start doing more? And then there's, there started to be a kind of a growing uh, chorus led by people like Maria Ressa, the Nobel Laureate, and others who said, you have a responsibility. You need to actually take seriously this. You can't just sit on the sidelines. It's being gamed and it's, it's, it's destroying our democracy. And sadly, I think you know that that was a, a delayed response. It was one of those things that it took a long time for Facebook to kind of own up and take seriously uh, these questions. Uh, and in the meantime, I think that um, that that environment was uh, was, was exploited uh, very well by Duterte and his allies. Um, I want to go back to China uh, because China got you into this field, and it kind of looms uh, throughout your book. Uh, but in the end, you, your argument regarding Chinese influence is pretty nuanced. Um, so is, is China the autocrat's arsenal of digital uh, repression tools? Um, uh, did, you think, uh, did your thinking about Chinese influence change over the course of the project? Yeah, my thinking certainly changed. And even some of my earlier writing where I was kind of presenting some arguments um, you know, about the role of China when it comes to spreading digital authoritarianism shifted, uh, particularly as a result of the field research I did, which is a you know I think uh, you know a reinforcement for how important field research is and case studies are when it comes to really understanding uh, what the data shows. Uh, because you know I I had a theory uh, you know uh, in a hypothesis that China really was driving and incentivizing digital repression in. A number of countries, particularly in countries that were pretty adjacent to, to China, like Thailand. And I kept asking questions along those lines, and I kept expecting to hear from different intelligence operatives, civil society, and many others in places like Thailand, even the Philippines, just how much China was tilting the landscape in favor of using these tools. And instead, what I heard was a large amount of pushback from all corners, where people would say, eh, you know, the United States is so focused on China being, uh, you know, the one pushing these tools, when in fact, you know, they're not acknowledging that many companies providing these tools come from Israel, come from Europe, come from the United States itself. 
or that you know we make decisions about what tools we want and we take some tools uh, from China on, on the surveillance side and we take other tools from uh, other countries because you know we need to do uh, some balancing uh, and hedging and that you know for us to simply become uh, you know a supplicant to China doesn't fit within our own security interests as well and so that really kind of got me to a more nuanced place uh, in that you know I certainly wouldn't dismiss the uh, powerful demonstration effect that China has had in terms of showcasing what can be done when it comes to modeling the use of these tools and I also wouldn't dismiss the fact that so many Chinese companies have been you know fairly active when it comes to uh, supplying at, at, at a very low cost, oftentimes subsidized by the Chinese state, uh, powerful surveillance tools. But I don't think that is at all the end of the story. Uh, I think we also have to look at other suppliers who come in, regime incentives and political motivations for why countries desire to decide to acquire these tools, and where they actually get them from. And I think that ends up presenting a much different picture than simply a simple narrative that China is uh, supplying digital authoritarianism instruments uh, and therefore cutting off Chinese supply will solve the problem. I don't believe that's really the case. Well, it seems like one sector that China gets a special attention in these days um, is related to AI tech, right? You can't go another week without a new tool being launched that is worth a front page New York Times story these days. Um, I'm curious how you think about that specific sector of tech and, uh, and whether or not it's going to change kind of fundamentally um, the trends that you have documented across other tools in this sort of digital repression toolkit. Um, you know, when, when the second edition of the book comes out, is there going to be a whole new AI section? Will you have to revise the whole work? Um, and, uh, and does this new type of digital technology change the kinds of regulatory responses um, that we should be thinking about? Yeah, frankly, I, I think given how quickly AI is evolving and innovating, it probably warrants a new book rather than a second edition, but maybe someone else will write that one. We'll see. Uh, I, I mean, and there's so many offshoots of AI. I mean, I think that's one of the things that becomes yeah. complicated. So, you know, certainly on our minds these days is generative AI, chat GPT-3, uh, and so many of the potential disinformation uses uh, tied to that technology. I mean, I don't think of that as a Chinese technology per se. I think of open AI. Uh, you know, I think of Google Bard. Uh, you know, I think of other related types of large language uh, models as, as really uh, at the forefront of that. So that's not a, a story about China at all. Uh, you know, what is more of a story about China is the use of kind of AI-based surveillance tools, uh, you know, linked to facial recognition algorithms uh, and uh, high-powered, um, you know, cameras and so forth that are used in public spaces and that have been used a pretty good effect uh, to identify uh, different individuals of interest, sometimes uh, based on ethnic origin, particularly when it comes to the Uyghur population. And I think that is something where China has been a pioneer and where that type of um, differentiation is, is something that uh, has been used and will be is being explored to other places. And so in that sense, I do look upon China as, as being kind of at the forefront of those types of innovations. But even if we were to look one slight set over when it comes to uh, AI tools and look at something like poli predictive policing, uh, you know, some of the leading companies that are undertaking these types of techniques, you know, Predpol uh, and uh, Palantir and so forth, uh, you know, are not, uh, are not Chinese-based. And so, you know, again, it's a very heterogeneous landscape. There are certain aspects to this that I think China has done very well in terms of dominating the market and showcasing to a chilling degree what is possible. 
But then there's so many other different aspects to that as well that sit within the criminal justice system of the United States and other democracies uh, that relate to algorithmic sentencing, that re uh, relate to identifying suspects, social media monitoring, uh, that have uh, much less to do with Chinese technology. Uh, so the linkage between technology and power politics isn't entirely new, even if the tools are changing. Uh, and I'm particularly uh, interested in understanding how the global war of terror has impacted this. So uh, could you give us uh, some perspective on how long-term trends like the global war on terror has shaped the current use and export of surveillance technology that you highlight, and perhaps also its linkage to the state discourse of uh, digital sovereignty that has become so big across China, Russia, and all these other countries? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the sort of global war on terror, counterterrorism agenda is one of those aspects that really was a, a shift in paradigm and, uh, you know, is one that ushered in kind of a really a new age when it came to countries notwithstanding their human rights and democracy uh, records who were, were given access to very powerful technologies under the pretense of fighting terrorism that end up being roundly exploited uh, for, uh, you know, for suppression uh, uh, purposes. And, and so, you know, essentially what, uh, what, what the counterterrorism, uh, you know, activities gave was an argument and a rationale for almost any kind of country that subscribed to sort of basic tenets of fighting terrorism and ability to acquire uh, a pretty invasive technologies. So I think of places like, uh, you know, like Egypt, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, Morocco, uh, as really good case in point, where certainly there were viable threats coming, but it just up ushered in a floodgate of resources. And, and it's not just the technologies, too. It was, uh, you know, specific trainings that were involved. Uh, it was partnering with forces. It was security assistance that was given. Uh, and you s saw, like, the standing up, uh, you know, of these special uh, units. Uh, one that comes to mind for me, another one that comes to mind, one I actually visited uh, in my time uh, working as a State Department official was a Rapid Action Battalion in Bangladesh, uh, where this was sort of uh, put together as a counterterrorism unit, uh, acquired very sophisticated uh, surveillance equipment, uh, and you know was found to be roundly abusing uh, its authorities to targeting uh, opposition politicians, civil society, and journalists uh, against the the government in power. Uh, and so, you know, I really think that to some degree we have kind of either stop looking at or kind of uh, underestimated the profound effect uh, that, uh, that the war, that, that these counterterrorism uh, resources have played, but I think in many ways they have really ushered in uh, something new. And, that, and those spillover effects continue to, um, you know, uh, to, to happen today. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, states like the U.S. have uh, experienced regulating or in incentivizing of private enterprises to prevent the facilitation of violence in conflict-prone countries. Um, I'm thinking of regulations requiring companies to disclose the use of conflict minerals um, if they are necessary for the production of a product manufactured by those companies. Uh, do you think, are there, uh, are there similar measures that could be implemented on those companies manufacturing digital security technology to stop conflict or um, do you advise of some different uh, regulatory steps in this area? Yeah, I think it's a really great point. And I, I think it's one of those areas that, again, there hasn't been enough done, and yet there already is a framework that exists that to build from. So 
there's something uh, that exists called the UN Guiding Principles uh, that relates to kind of business and human rights responsibilities, and it has a kind of a host of uh, requirements that ought to be adopted by countries in relation to businesses who sell uh, equipment to different customers that you know uh, require due diligence at the front end, ongoing monitoring for human rights abuses, uh, remediation if abuses uh, were to have occurred, and a cutting off of those technologies uh, when, when violations are found. Uh, and this provides a good template and a playbook uh, for liberal democracies in, in particular uh, to put in place regulations that will uh, enforce codes of conduct and standards for who their companies sell to and what requirements ought to be in place, what, what process they ought to follow to ensuring that their end user uh, doesn't end up violating um, uh, different human rights standards as a result of those technologies. And the fact of the matter is uh, you know, not much of that is really enforced or done. I think we're starting to see a bubbling up and a greater emphasis on some of these ideas. Uh, and you know, this week's Summit for Democracy uh, is a good example of a number of important surveillance-oriented initiatives uh, that are, that are taking, taking place right now that can help in that uh, accountability process when it comes to private sector companies uh, being held accountable for more responsible behavior when it comes to how their tools are used. Yeah, maybe you could, uh, could jump in with a little bit more on that uh, Summit for Democracy term that you use. Um, our you know, listeners may be aware that uh, actually as we speak, uh, the Biden administration is working through its latest version of the Summit for Democracy, um, and uh, the Grawmeyer Awards have managed to pull one of the world's leading experts on digital technology away uh, from Washington at exactly the time uh, that that work is ramping up, but you'll be flying out very early tomorrow for exactly this reason. Uh, so why will you be on that early flight tomorrow, and um, how, kind of more broadly, um, uh, is American diplomacy right now uh, strategizing about the tools to respond to the kinds of dynamics that, uh, that you've put your finger on in the book? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, uh, this week is the second Summit for Democracy. The first one was held uh, in December of 2021. This is the sort of follow-up version right now, and it's a really big deal. Uh, you have 100-plus con- uh, countries that are participating, uh, many of them virtually, some in person, uh, to think about ways in which countries can come together to commit to important democratic principles. And, you know, I think the U.S. oftentimes get a lot of flack, gets a lot of flack uh, for sort of espousing important principles while sometimes violating those for other interests. But I think in this situation, uh, you know, there really is a lot of substance that the administration is putting on the table. And in, you know, the area of digital technology in particular, I mean, we've already seen earlier uh, on Monday the release of an executive order banning the commercial use of, of spyware from any government entities uh, in the United States. Uh, and we're seeing more initiatives come together uh, over the course of this week uh, that involve putting together coalitions of countries uh, to specifically push back against surveillance and to subscribe to a series of best practices when it comes to how these technologies will be used. On Thursday, tomorrow, as you mentioned, uh, there's a showcase uh, event uh, taking place all afternoon, uh, led by Secretary of State Tony Blinken, uh, that will involve describing in particular uh, ways in which democracy and technology both uh, ought to be used to confront authoritarianism as well as to build important good democratic principles uh, in countries. And so to me, this really shows that this moment, this, this issue has met its moment uh, and that policymakers are taking it seriously and that they recognize that these, there are really significant inherent challenges in getting a handle on how these technologies are being used 
but that the time is now to really do something urgent to confront these problems. Uh, so you've worked in human rights for a long time, including with activists uh, trying to push back against various forms of traditional repression. Could you wrap us up by sharing some of your thoughts on how civil society groups and others outside of government interested in open societies could raise the costs of digital repression, um, what supply and demand side strategies might activists might give activists a path forward? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, oftentimes it can feel like a little bit bleak, uh, if not hopeless, uh, when it comes to citizens on the ground challenging the use of these powerful technologies by entrenched regimes. But there are a lot of strategies available that can have an important effect. And, you know, some of the things that come to mind is that, you know, a lot of governments, particularly governments that, uh, you know, in hybrid regimes where there has to be some responsiveness uh, to citizens and to the street, there is an opportunity uh, for, for pushback uh, to get governments to reconsider how they would use tools. I mean, a good example is in, in Serbia, uh, which purchased uh, a few years ago uh, technology from Huawei to install a safe city system in Belgrade. Uh, and you started to see the burgeoning and emergence of a very strong civil society movement uh, that has protested the use of these tools. That have asked, one, you know, can we afford the costs of putting in place such a system? And two, what is it going to be used for anyway? What kind of oversight will there be? What kind of information will be collected? And that has caused, I think, uh, has given a bit of pause to the Serbian government as a result. And that is a, a tactic and a strategy that I think uh, activists from around the world can do better of, to, to make citizens aware about what kind of rights and protections they ought to have when it comes to their privacy, uh, to ask them, to get them to question why governments are purchasing these types of surveillance tools. You know, is this a good use of resources? And will this result, result in human rights violations? Uh, and continue to kind of push for oversight as a result of that. Because I think the only way in, in many places you are gonna be able to counter some of that is for governments to have to take a second look and say, well, we could purchase this uh, safe city surveillance system, but the public backlash is something that we don't want to deal with. And as we're worried about a, an election that's upcoming that we you know, want to rig, but that we still need to have some legitimate amount of, of participation in, maybe putting in place a surveillance system isn't the best idea. Uh, and so that's the kind of dynamic, that's the kind of shift that, that can start to take place and I think can start to move the needle a little bit when it comes to digital repression strategies uh, that regimes would otherwise seek to enact. Great. Well, thanks so much, Stephen, for being with us today. It's been awesome having you on campus, and, uh, and we appreciate your Asia-focused uh, analysis here on the pod. Uh, congrats again also on the award. It's, a, uh, it's quite the feather in your cap, and it's a great addition to the, the list of Grawmeyer winners over the years. So we're so glad to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really been uh, a wonderful couple days I've had on campus and taking part in the award ceremony. It's really been nice to meet different students and faculty uh, and other members of the community and to talk about these issues. And I look forward to continuing the engagement with the, with the University of Louisville and different forums uh, going forward. Great. Uh, to our listeners, we're glad to be back with you today. Uh, maybe ironically, given our content today, keep your eyes on the center's social media accounts uh, for uh, future episodes, as well as a couple of uh, public events and streaming talks that we'll have uh, just in the coming weeks. We have a great talk with Tarek Thatchel of the University of Pennsylvania coming up next week um, and, uh, and some other programming that will come uh, both on the pod and via YouTube streams and in person in the weeks after that. Uh, until then, thanks again, Stephen. Be well and safe travels.
Thank you so much.